Rise Up theme song, take five. Answering the difficult and critical questions youth may face that relate to Mormon culture and teachings, this is the Rise Up Podcast, produced by Fair Mormon. Dr. Greg L. Smith practices medicine near his home in Canada. Aside from medicine, Brother Smith studies the history and doctrine of polygamy. If you have questions, Greg Smith has answers. Hi, my name is Greg Smith, and I'm happy to be invited to participate in this Fair Mormon Rise Up podcast. My research interests have focused around LDS plural marriage, or polygamy, as it's sometimes called, and so Nick asked me to do a little basic summary of that for you. So why is plural marriage hard to understand, or why does it cause people troubles? Well, I think there's a few reasons. It was last practiced more than 100 years ago, so we don't learn a whole lot about it from personal experience. The other thing that's really important to remember is that for the people that were involved with it, they were equally or more upset about it than we might be. Uh, They needed revelation to put their minds at ease about it. And we need to remember that, that we need the same sort of thing that they needed. We need revelation, ultimately. It's also difficult to understand because it's a very complex area of history, and it's easy for critics of the church to only tell you part of the story and then let your worries or your imaginations do the rest. It's also difficult because a lot of what has been said uh, really probably isn't true, or it's been a skewed perspective that's been given to people. And even though we've got better research now, critics sometimes keep offering the same old stories to us. It's also tricky because some members of the church, meaning well, I think, have sometimes given explanations for it that aren't correct. And so when they do that and then we find out later that those explanations aren't really true, that can sometimes uh, disturb us or make it seem like someone tried to fool us or trick us. But really, I think they just didn't have all the information and they did the best they could. Probably one of the biggest reasons that this whole topic even comes up is because it's, it's dangerous to combine sex and religion. That shouldn't surprise us. And... It's pretty natural, I think, for us to wonder if maybe something besides true revelation or true religion was going on here. It's not uncommon to see religious leaders try to exploit their followers or the people that listen to them uh, for sexual reasons. And so it's, I think, natural and, and normal for us to wonder if, gee, maybe it was Joseph Smith doing that. I think as we look at the evidence, we find that he wasn't, but uh, it's a natural thing to worry about. And much more personally, I think, is that sometimes these things stir up other memories or other associations. Uh, People who've dealt with the oppression of women or if they've been mistreated or even abused by men in or out of the church, ideas like plural marriage can kind of stir all that up. And so there's a very emotional gut-level reaction that many people have, which is understandable, but it doesn't always help us understand uh, what was going on. So I think those are some of the reasons why it's tricky. Sometimes plural marriage makes more sense or becomes more understandable when we realize that it involved real people and real uh, lives. One of my family members practiced plural marriage. His name was Isaiah Moses Coombs. He was my great-great-great-grandfather. He wrote this in a book to his children, quote, 
It was in January of 1960 that my wife Fanny and I began to talk seriously about obeying the celestial law in relation to plural marriage. She was not only willing but anxious for me to take other wives, notwithstanding our poverty. I record this fact here that our children may know how early in life their noble and self-sacrificing mother accepted as an article of her faith this order of plural marriage so despised by the world. Quote. So you'll notice in this that uh, this was not an easy thing for them. It, it, they were quite poor, and so it required considerable financial sacrifice. And it was a decision that he and his wife uh, reached together. This was not always the way it worked, though it was how it was supposed to work. Uh, on July 1st, 1875, he married his second wife, Charlotte Augusta Henry. And he said this about that, quote, This was with the full and free consent of my first wife, Fanny. The day after Augusta's arrival, Fanny took her through the house and showed her, all, showed her all that we had been able by long economy and labor to accumulate to make our home comfortable, and then told her, all this belongs to the family. You're now one of us, so take hold and use and enjoy all that you see, the same as the rest of us. Everything that is here, except what's in my private bedroom, belongs as much to you as to me. I want to see you feel at home." And then Isaiah goes on to say, This speech came from the heart of my peerless wife. She meant every word of it, and her actions ever afterwards proved her sincerity. Augusta was treated by Fanny and her children as an honored guest. So you can see how this idea of plural marriage was a real invitation to Christian discipleship, to really living the gospel. I mean, it was a very tough thing for everybody involved. And you could either do it in a Christ-like way or not. And here, I think, these people seem to do their best to do it in the way that Heavenly Father and Jesus would want them to. As I mentioned, the family was very poor. And at one point, uh, the first wife was given some money from two of her older children because they wanted to buy their younger brothers some clothes. But his first wife said this, quote, no, I will have nothing bought for my children that Pa cannot afford to buy for Augusta's children. All must dress and fare alike. I will not have the feelings of Augusta's little children hurt by seeing my children dressed better than they are. Close quote. And so I'm really humbled before that kind of Christ-like living. Not all plural marriages lived up to that ideal, but many did. And generations later, I benefit from the blessings of those people's good example and the other things that it taught them and did to their family. Uh, my family is as good as it is, or as happy as it is, I think, because of some of the lessons that they learned and practiced. So I'm a beneficiary of that. So now, I'm just going to give you kind of the the take-home messages of plural marriage, if you like. I'm just going to ask a few questions and then answer them. These are going to be short and brief. There are whole books written on this subject. We can get you any information you want, and maybe I'll come on with Nick sometime and talk about these things in more detail. But this is just kind of the, the Coles notes or the Cliff notes version of plural marriage. Question number one, did Joseph Smith teach and practice plural marriage? The answer, yes, he did. He was married to about 35 wives in his lifetime. He had taught the principle to between two and 300 people in Nauvoo before he died. Question number two, did Joseph force women to marry him? No, he clearly didn't. He would usually approach uh, a male relative, or he would often do that anyway, to discuss plural marriage. The women were free to decline, and some of them did, and they stayed in the church and remained faithful and migrated to Utah with the saints. Question number three, was Joseph married to women who were already married? Yes, he was, and this is one of the things that's maybe most difficult to understand. We've come to understand it a lot better in the last 10 years. Uh, there were nine or 10 women that were sealed to Joseph while their husbands were still living. 
What's important to understand here is that there's no good evidence that any of those marriages was consummated. They don't seem to have lived together as husband and wife or had sexual relations that we know of. Uh, these things were probably intended as a way to accomplish sealings. Uh, it was a way that Joseph could be connected to these families and tie all the members of the church or all the people involved into one big family. We do it a little bit different these days. We seal to our ancestors and we go back as far as we can and then we plan to do the rest during the millennium. But in the early days of the church, they wanted to get everybody sealed that they could. So some of these women were members of the church whose husbands weren't members, some were inactive members, and some, some were active. In at least some cases, we know that the men knew about it and gave their permission. And there's no evidence that Joseph ever uh, got into trouble with these husbands or anything, which you'd expect if he was sleeping with their wives, especially the non-member husbands. They were typically families to whom Joseph was very close and felt a very close emotional connection. So it was probably intended to seal them together. Uh, critics of the church usually won't tell you that part of the story, though. Question number three, how old were Joseph's wives? Well, Joseph married people over a variety of ages. The youngest was just shy of her 15th birthday, and the oldest was about 50. Uh, we don't have any evidence, again, that the marriages with younger women were consummated. They were probably, like with the marriages to women that were already married, they were intended to seal families together. It's important to remember that at that time and place, women tended to get married at younger ages than they do now. There's a lot of reasons for that, but uh, Craig Foster, David Keller, and I did a research paper where we used a statistical model to try to figure out if Joseph's marriage ages were any different than the people around him, and it turns out they aren't. Uh, there's the same age ranges in Mormons and non-Mormons in his time and place. So what was strange about Joseph's marriages was the plural marriage, which was plenty strange, but not the ages of the wives. But church critics will sometimes try to shock you with that and make it seem very strange that Joseph uh, was sealed to women of a younger age. Question number five, did Joseph Smith have any children from any of the plural wives? Not that we know of for sure. There's been a number of children who were suggested as possible children of Joseph, all from those wives that already had husbands. So there was another potential father in the picture. And all of the ones that have been able to be tested by DNA have turned out not to be Joseph's children. There's one child, uh, a girl named Josephine, interestingly, who is probably Joseph's daughter, and there's one or two other possible ones. There's a few that we can't test and probably never will be able to test, uh, either because the DNA has become confused from intermarriage or because the child died really young and didn't leave any descendants to be tested today. Question number six, was Joseph promiscuous or a womanizer in his early years? Uh, no is the short answer. Uh, decades after his death, when polygamy was well known, people began to talk and tell stories about Joseph doing immoral things when he was young, but none of those charges was ever made at the time, when there would have been great benefit to his critics in doing so. And none of those charges really hold up when you analyze them, so there's no good evidence that he was a womanizer. Question number seven, did men or women simply obey because Joseph was the prophet? And that's definitely not true. No, they didn't. Uh, they all reported being uh, very troubled, very upset by the ideas of plural marriage, and they were inclined to reject it. There's many stories told about miraculous visions and experiences in response to prayer that confirmed to them that plural marriage was a command to them from God, and that's why they did it. Question number eight. 
was it necessary to practice plural marriage to be saved? Well, Brigham Young said that for the 19th century saints, they needed to believe that plural marriage came from God. That is, they needed to believe that it was a revelation, but they didn't have to practice it necessarily. He and President Wilford Woodruff made it plain that you could be saved with one wife, with many wives, or even if you were unmarried, if you didn't have the opportunity, sort of like we talk about it today. One thing that people then wonder is they say, well, will we have to practice plural marriage or will I have to now or later on or in the celestial kingdom? And the answer to that is no. As far as we know, uh, that's not necessary. What is necessary is to obey whatever the prophet tells us in our day. And uh, for them, it was a ta- challenge and a test of plural marriage. Uh, for us, I think it will be different things, uh, but there's no evidence that we have that it's going to be something that we have to continue to do. So I don't worry about that. I'm glad we won't have to do it. Question number 10, how many of the Mormons practice plural marriage? The answer to that is it varies from time to time or place to place. There were very, very few before Joseph's death. At most, probably about 15 to 20 percent of people were in a plural marriage. Uh, That's about 5 percent of the men of the church in Utah. But it wasn't a majority, but because a lot of those men tended to be leaders of the church, it had a really big impact on LDS culture and the experiences the Mormons had at that uh, time in history. Question number 11, how many wives did men in Utah have? The answer to that is most men, that is, you know, about two-thirds of them had only two wives. A few of them had three wives, and it was fairly rare to have more than that. Question number 12, was divorce allowed in plural marriage? The answer to that is yes. Women could receive a divorce on request. Uh, Men, it was quite difficult for them to get divorced, but Brigham Young would pretty much grant a divorce to women uh, just for the asking. Uh, The statistics says that about 1% of regular marriages, monogamous marriages with just one husband and wife, ended in divorce. About 9% of the plural marriages did. But interestingly, many of the women who divorced a plural spouse would then go into another plural marriage. So those divorces don't all reflect people who were sick of plural marriage. It's just they were marriages that didn't work out. And then the last question that I'll answer or that I'll talk about right now is why was plural marriage put in place? People want to know that more than anything, I think. And, and we don't really know the answer to this. Joseph Smith just said that God had told him that the church couldn't go on any further, couldn't progress without plural marriage. So we don't know why that was commanded, but we do know some of the things that it did, and I'll just tell you a few of those. This doesn't mean these are reasons why, but they were things that certainly happened because of it, and I I think were probably part of the reason, but that's just my opinion. One of the things it did is it set the Mormons apart from American society, We know from the research of new religions that for a new religion that's just starting out to flourish and become established, it needs what uh, people call moderate tension with the host society. What that means is you can't have things be too tense between the new religion and the people that surround them, or they'll try to kill you off. And we, we kind of know from church history what that was like. That did happen sometimes. But the problem is if you become too much like the society around you, then the religion doesn't hold together and you you can't, you know, they just become like everybody else. So one of the things that plural marriage did is it made us quite a bit different, but not so different that people would try to kill us. And it helped that we were out in Utah, far away from the U.S. Army and other people. So that's one thing it did is it, it made the church a separate group for a few generations that uh, allowed us to form kind of a 
strong core of people who had the church as their main identity. The second thing that it did is that children who were born into those families, kind of like I discussed with my family history, uh, could see dedicated members of their family living the religion at great sacrifice. And so that's a good way to get strong, faithful members, is to, is to put them in a family where uh, it's very obvious that they're making sacrifices for their faith. A third thing that it did is it let all women who wanted to marry in the church uh, marry faithful men if they decided to. Women were always more worthy, or there were more women worthy of temple recommends in Utah than men were. There were more men in Utah, but a lot of them were non-members. They were army people or prospectors or or that sort. So if women wanted to get married, some of them were either going to have to marry out of the church or marry inactive men, or they were going to have to practice plural marriage. And so plural marriage allowed them to marry, to remain strong in the church, and to raise their children in the gospel. And that was probably important for building up a strong core of members. Another thing that it did is it allowed widows and orphans to be cared for more easily. Uh, because men sometimes aren't willing to marry uh, a widow or an orphan if they've got someone who's never been married. It's less baggage. And in talking about plural marriage as some kind of an Abrahamic test or, or something that needs revelation or that needs faith, I thought I might close with a story from that same great-great-great-grandfather that I told you about at the beginning, Isaiah Moses Coombs. Here's a story that he tells about crossing the plains with a, with a group. He says, One hot afternoon I was sitting in the tent, suffering from a severe attack of cholera morbus. That's abdominal pain and severe diarrhea. My suffering, he says, was excruciating. While I sat thus, Elder Daniel Spencer came to the tent door, leading a horse by its bridle. Here, Brother Coombs, said he, I wish you would mount this horse and take a ride about twelve miles out to the little grasshopper, where Brother Seacrest's company will camp tonight and borrow some money for Brother Snow. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, that doesn't sound like much fun on a, when you've got bad diarrhea and abdominal pain. So my grandfather says this, I answered that I could not possibly, that I was racked with pain and had made up my mind to die that night. Oh, no, replied Brother Spencer, you shall not die. You'll have a pleasant canter over the prairie, and I promise you in the name of the Lord that you shall return feeling much better, and that you shall be sick no more till you get home. With that promise, he says, I allowed him to help me into the saddle, and after receiving my instructions, proceeded slowly and wearily to wend my way through the encampment till it reached the highway onto the prairie. Here I gave my horse the rein, and just as the sun was sinking beyond the western horizon, I started off on a keen gallop for the distant grasshopper. The first few jumps of my steed occasioned me great pain, but I hung on to the pommel of the saddle, determined that the ride should either cure or kill me. I had not gone far before all pain left me. Thereupon a wild, reckless spirit took possession of me, and putting spurs to my horse, I dashed along the road at headlong speed, whooping and yelling as I went. But I continued not in that mood a great while. On reaching a grove of timber, I dismounted, and on my knees returned thanks to God for this manifestation of his loving kindness to me. I there promised, if he would forgive the lukewarm service I had hitherto rendered him, that I would in future give him my whole heart. I arose, feeling that I stood on holy ground, remounted my horse, and pursued my journey. Maybe for you, plural marriage is sort of like an attack of dreadful diarrhea, a kind of spiritual cholera morbus. Maybe you're planning to die, or maybe you think you're dying or have died spiritually. Maybe facing up to it or something else like it is the very last thing you want to do. It might seem as difficult as a 12-mile journey on horseback when you're desperately ill. 
But, you know, I am a witness that if you will take a first few steps forward in faith, as my great-great-great-grandfather did, if you get on the horse despite your pain and your fear and how unfair it might seem, that then you will see miracles in your life, revelation and peace from God come, and you'll be filled with joy and gratitude. Plural marriage, or, or whatever it is that troubles you, either something that happens in your life or something about church history or something you don't understand, whatever those things are, can become your sacred ground where you actually learn to know Heavenly Father and Jesus more closely and have your testimony strengthened. Uh, That's certainly what's happened to me. You may think that the first few bumps will kill you, but they won't, and before you know it, you'll be galloping at top speed, headed to the Salt Lake Valley and home. I've learned for myself that Joseph is a prophet of God and that we're in his church, and nothing in all that I've studied about plural marriage has ever given me reason to change that opinion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rise Up. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Questions or comments can be posted at blog.fairmormon.org in conjunction with this episode. Tune in each week for another episode of Rise Up. Thank you for listening.